enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. So many of you are doing that right now. It's super exciting to see. And a lot of you have signed up for your fall marathons. And how exciting is that? Finally, the marathons are back. Summer training is in full swing. And it can be hard, man. Summer training can be difficult. We're out there in the heat. We're trying to prepare for a marathon the best we can. And that's why I'm here for you, not only for the podcast, with all the information, the motivation, and the inspiration that comes from hearing these amazing people like today's episode, Amy Nalini, but also as a coach. And I'm coached with McCurdy Trained. And I love coaching athletes, the same people just like you who like listening to this show, people who are trying to balance high-level training with the myriad of other things in their life and want to do some really cool stuff, not only in the short term, but also the long term. So if you're one of those people, I want to be your coach. I want to help you achieve those dreams and have fun doing it. Head over to McCurdyTrained.com. That's M-C-K-I-R-D-Y Trained.com and sign up today. Basically, simple. You fill out a questionnaire, put my name at the bottom and it says, hey, who do you want to be your coach? And then uh, either Heather or James will contact you from McCurdy Trained and they'll figure it all out and make sure that you're assigned and matched up with the perfect coach for you. And hopefully it's me because I would love to help you reach your dreams. So let's get into today's episode with Amy Natalini. Amy is an amazing, amazing athlete. She's been on the podcast before, and we've talked about her extensive training. I'll put a little link to that in the show notes. This was, I think it was two Januarys ago. It was way back, way back. Uh, she's fantastic. In this episode, we talk about what she's been doing recently in terms of her master's thesis. So she is not only an extensive marathoner who's done really, really great stuff. She's also a coach, but as part of her time at the Air Force, she just did a really intensive training on motivation, specifically combat motivation. Now, this is not a military podcast, but there was a lot of things that she learned in that process that she's using now in terms of her own athletic endeavors and her coaching endeavors. And I wanted to learn from her about all that stuff. So let's get into it with Amy. Amy Natalini, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's going great. I'm so excited to have you back. It's funny. I was thinking back, like, all right, when was Amy on last? I know it was a January episode. And then I'm like, wait, was it last year? The year before? Three years ago? Three years. Three years ago. It doesn't feel like three years ago. It's funny how time works. Like certain things can be six months ago and it feels like a decade ago. And yet other moments are like the opposite. It was definitely PC pre-COVID. And, you know, we call that the, the gap year, the lost year. So it it, you know, time is relative, absolutely relative. And <laughs> COVID has messed with everybody, right? So yeah, three whole years, it's, it seems like a lifetime ago almost. It's funny. And you have those moments in your life that like, even if they are so long ago, they kind of stick in your consciousness in a different way. I remember that day because I was one of those days I recorded five podcasts that day. And that was the, the most I'd ever recorded in one day. And I was like, this is great. January is all done <laughs> in one day. And like that day is like stuck in my mind for so many ways, like so many reasons. Like it just feels like it was always yesterday because it's just at the forefront of your mind. 
And then there's other things that happen in your life. You're like, wait, when did that happen? I have no idea. And you're like, that was three weeks ago, man. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? It was not that long ago. Um, with all of that said, I'm so excited for you to be back on here because you're doing simply amazing things. And I just told you offline that when I read one of your recent posts, I was like, I was like, all right, if I didn't know Amy Nalini, I would be like, this isn't true. There's no way a person can do all of the things that she's saying that she has recently done. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up the Instagram post that I'm referencing now because it is insane. So I'm going to read. These are your words. And we're going to dive into this because this is awesome. This is so awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Over the last 11 months, I've been working towards my third master's degree, which is like a staggering sentence in and of itself. That's only the first part of a sentence. That's only the first part of a staggering sentence, but we can just, we can just stop there, but we're not going to. We're going to keep going. Uh, third master's degree, reading a book a day, writing papers for finals exam, final exams, spending hours arguing, defending, and listening, learning from my classmates, and writing a thesis on motivation, combat motivation to be precise. All of that with everything else that you were already doing. Was this always the plan? Like, when did this start to germinate in terms of like, this is how I wanted to spend this part of my life. All right. So let's, let's go back a little ways. Um, the last time we chatted, uh, I was stationed in Louisiana with the air force at Barksdale air force base. And, uh, I had a job, you know, an office job. I had been selected to go to air command and staff college. Um, oh, and stop me. If I use any acronyms, because it just kind of comes natural for me, but um, a lot of times people are like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that stands for. So stop me and I will do my best to interpret <laughs> all acronyms. You got it. You got it. <laughs> so I was picked up to go to Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. So we're still in the South doing the Southern thing. You know, it's hot and humid down here. Loving it. Um my husband and I moved down here. He was teaching for a year. And then our second year, we stayed and I went to the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. And he went to Air War College. And the School of, of Advanced Air and Space Studies is also known as SAS, S-A-A-S-S. -S. Um, we call it the Book a Day Club. And it is literally a book a day. <laughs> uh, it is the hardest course I've ever taken, but probably the most fulfilling course I've ever taken for the Air Force. And the whole point is to go to school for 11 months, get awarded a master's in philosophy in, in military strategy, and graduate as a big thinker. We have presented a lot of problems in the military with kind of these big things like uh, great power competition with the Chinese or the Russians, um, a lot of cyber uh, problems that we have, artificial intelligence, information warfare, and uh, the Air Force needs people. And I was luckily enough to be chosen to go do that for 11 months. Um, but I can kind of run you down and tell you, uh, you know, what the expectations were and whether or not <laughs> how I managed them and whether or not I actually met them. Um, like I said, it's the book a day club and people are like, there's no way, there's no way that you can read a 300 page book every single day for 10 months. 
because you know the last month is like cleaning up your thesis and so really I'm raising is, my hand yeah. yes that yeah. exactly I, i'm not gonna lie i had it had youtube like scammer feel to it right you hear that you think of like those crazy people on youtube videos who are like you're gonna change your life i'm gonna i read four books a day and i'm gonna sell you this course and you're like oh god like give me a break right so you i had like that was like my point of reference of like, all right, these fake people do that. And like, Amy's no fake person, but it was like, that was the initial feeling of like, listen, I've started a lot of books. I can't <laughs> say I finished a lot of books uh, in my life. So to hear that, I'm like, wow, that is just an incredible feat in of itself. It, it was a lot, 136 books over 10 months. You know, I, I really appreciate weekends now. <laughs> because there were some times when, so a weekend is two days, so it's not necessarily a book a day, but on the weekends, you got to read four to 500 pages instead of only two to 300. Oh my God. Um, there's a book that we read called uh, The Wages of Destruction. It's about World War II and how the Nazis uh, lost World War II based on economics. And, you know, that book is like this thick. But that was my Labor Day weekend. It was like a thousand pages. <laughs> like, and, and, and Amy's Amy's showing us a, basically a four inch thick book. <laughs> you get to the point <laughs> like, where oh just flipping pages, flipping pages. But you learn how to do it. You know, intro, conclusion, chapters, headings, Um tear apart the book, get the essence of the book, not necessarily every single word. Um, so that was the majority of the time this year was spent just reading and soaking in all this knowledge that I had never really had a chance to sit down and think about before. And then, you know, we're also required to write a thesis. And so we can talk about that a little bit later because I wrote about um, motivation, combat motivation. Um, you know, each course was broken up into three to five weeks and each course had a paper that was due for it. We did a couple of class projects, did some innovation pitching, um, a group project for forecasting, which just means that we sat down to think about a problem and where that problem was going to go in the next, you know, three to five years, which was awesome because then you get to sit down and talk to people in your class that are thinking, about the same problem, but they're thinking about it differently, which is so great because all these different perspectives coming together is, you know, that's one of the main, the main reasons we do this is, is to learn how to think differently. Oh, I can imagine. So did, when did this course become something that you were aspiring to? Cause obviously not everybody can do it. And I'm sure there's some sort of selection process. So when, when did this pop up on your radar something that not only you were interested in, but that you really wanted to do? Uh, it's probably been about six or eight years that I started kind of digging in and learning more about it. And then when we came to air command and staff college, they are like, give the pitch for the class and say, Hey, if you're interested, apply. And you don't necessarily like, if you get selected, it is, uh, there's 45 of us. Um, so there's no obligation to actually go, but you know, you want to apply. If you, if you feel like you, have this hankering to apply to this book a day club, <laughs> then you apply that year. Um, they've changed the rules a little bit in the last 12 to 18 months, I think, to change the selection process. It doesn't have to be right after Air Command and Staff College because let me tell you, doing two master's programs back to back, that was pretty rough. 
Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I mean, on some level, I can't imagine because I haven't done it, but I can imagine it being, you know, just an enormous amount of time and energy and all of that. With that said, you are you're an incredibly active person, right? You are a, an accomplished marathoner. You've been doing this for for quite a while now, and and we in our previous episode three years ago, we dived headfirst into all of that. So people go back and check check that out, and and uh, if you're interested in kind of the the background story with Amy and her running and her all the things she's been able to accomplish up to that point, when you we're kind of on the precipice of this class starting. Obviously, it's a huge time commitment. I mean, just an enormous time commitment uh, to say nothing of the mental energy and emotional energy involved in it. What was it like in terms of managing that with just trying to be like an active person and not like just sitting at a desk all day with all these responsibilities to say nothing of like, oh, you're also going to be running, you know, running an 85 page, you know, thesis at the end of this, which is basically like, you know, half of a book. Um, That's that is an incredible amount of work. Um, did you also have to like kind of negotiate your own day job during that period of time with the Air Force? Or what was, I guess what I'm asking in a really roundabout way is, <laughs> were you able to do all the areas of your life that you'd been used to doing prior to this class? So two amazing things, right? This was my job for a whole year. This was my Air Force job. My job was to go to school. And so I didn't have to be an intel officer. I didn't have to lead people other than myself. <laughs> and then COVID, you know, I know a lot of people are really disappointed in the last year and all the races being canceled and all of the preparation that people had been doing. But I think a lot of people actually thrived in this environment because they had a lot of time to dedicate to running. And that was something that was not necessarily afforded to them when they had to go to work every day or had to go to school every day um, because we were in person in class four days a week, um, but we only went to class for two hours. So the rest of the time was really managing our own schedules, um, writing papers, reading books. I mean, I would dedicate about six hours a day to reading. Oh, uh, it seems like It seems like a lot, but... Uh, but you know, you, you have the opportunity to wake up at five or six in the morning and get the run in before you have to go to class. And then, um, the, the most interesting part was when, uh, my kid was not in school when she was, you know, virtual for however little bit, amount of time she was not in school. Um, having her walk in every couple hours and just to check on me and be like, are you okay? I haven't heard anything in a while. Are you still alive? I'm like, yes, I'm still alive. Can you please go get me some more coffee? Oh my God. That's funny. So she was like parenting you in a way. Yeah. You're sitting there isolated in your room. And she's coming in to check on you. Um, oh my gosh. That is funny. Um, so what was it like for you just like from a social perspective, right? You're as an Air Force officer, someone who's you know typically working with people and managing other people, all of a sudden, you know, with COVID and this class, like you must have been it must have been a very different situation for you just socially and, and working independently in such a um different environment. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate that we couldn't socialize as much as we wanted to. You know, Zoom, of course, is a great thing and you can uh, jump on and have the Zoom happy hours. Uh, we would do some socially distanced, you know, outdoor barbecues, get everybody together. But it was, I'm not gonna say it was a disappointment. I think we worked around it as best we could. 
Uh, it's really hard when you go into a seminar that's 10 to 12 people. And the whole point is to get a better understanding for what your peers are thinking about um, and how they think and how they're looking at problems or discussing books and being able to agree or disagree on something. And if you can't see their face because they're wearing a mask, that's really, really hard. Um, there's a lot of opportunities to misread people when you can't see their whole facial expressions, or maybe you don't want to see their, their whole facial expressions. But uh, I think it forces people to be honest with one another. Um, because if you can't see someone's face, then you're more likely to kind of say, okay, so what did you actually think about that? Um, and then we did a lot of classes on Zoom. So that was nice because then you can actually see people's faces and and understand and and kind of learn more. Um, it was a, it was a lot of balance this year. You know, we talk a lot about being able to work through finding ways to do what you want to do in your running life, but then also balance that with work. And you know, I know a lot of people that get up early. I know a lot of people that stay up late. Um, I had promised my family that regardless of what was going on, reading, writing papers, you know, research, whatever, um, whether my kid had dance or, you know, whatever else was going on in our lives, we would sit down and we would have dinner together. That was our, that was our main goal was I promise that I will see you at least once a day and we can catch up and be the family and, see each other face to face and find out what's going on in each other's lives at least once a day, because otherwise you lose that. And I think that's a really, that's a really tough thing when mom's, you know, locked away in her office and doesn't have an opportunity to come out and see what's going on. You kind of lose the threads a little bit, you know? Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in the stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's, it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. 
Hey everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. Yeah, I can imagine, especially with that sort of thing. Like you mentioned, it's so easy to be and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but just self-absorbed because that's what that class takes, right? It takes that level of commitment. Um, and I think it was, I think I heard a podcast with Tim Grover, who was the personal like performance coach for like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. And the person was asking him like, you know, what, what does it take to be great at something like that? And he's like, well, what you have to do is you just have to take balance out the window. Like there is no balance, right? If you want to achieve at that level, you need to be fully invested in it. Now, that doesn't mean fully invested for like your entire life every single day, but there are seasons where it's like, hey, this is the season where I'm fully invested and that's what that takes. And then there's going to be, and maybe for them, it was like the literal season, like the, the NBA basketball season. But you can talk about it more metaphorically of like, all right, now this season is like, all right, now we're, I can kind of decompress from that and I can move more focus over here. And and then it also isn't still balanced because you're maybe doing far less of what you did before. Um, so I can see what for like something that's an 11 month commitment like that you dove into, I can see the similarities there, I guess. Yeah. And you know, it's not, it's not easy. And I'm not saying that every moment was perfect. It wasn't by any means. I mean, I think it was in February. We had just, uh, I guess, actually March, I guess, because it was coming up on spring break. And we had just run the Louisiana Marathon. And I talked to my coach and I was like, I need a break. I had planned on running other marathons this spring season and, you know, races were starting up again. It was really exciting to start seeing people get out and race again. And I, I was at a breaking point and my husband and my kid knew it. And I had ignored <laughs> the warning signs a little bit. Uh, luckily I have a very understanding coach and he was like, yeah, let's take a break. You haven't taken a break in like three or four years you're constantly training for something. Let's take a break. 
And, and we talk about balance and my husband and I like to talk more about integration because it is really hard to balance, you know, when you're a high level, uh, athlete with everything else that's going on in your life, whether it's family or work, you know, everybody has to find a way to make it work and you're not going to be able to balance it all, all the time. Just like you said. I love that substitution of the words there, right? Because balance, you have this idea of things being equal on some level, right? That that's what the, that's what the balancing means, right? Like on, on, on whether if it's like just one plane where you have like equal sides on both or if it's, you know, multi-plane. Again, some level of things are equaling each other out in some sense. Um, whereas integration, I feel like it's so much more applicable to what we're talking about because, again – creating balance, things don't have to be balanced to be functional in this sense. But integrated, it seems like a much more, a much more um, vital thing to aspire to. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit healthier, I think, um, because the balance takes a lot of work. And if you're trying to juggle all of these things and, and find ways to keep all your balls up in the air at the same time, inevitably, you're going to drop one or two. And I like to say, you know, got to keep those glass balls in the air. But if there's a plastic one that you drop, it's okay. It bounces, right? <laughs> and so that's fine because you can go and you can go pick it up later and it'll, it'll, it'll bounce back and you get it back up in the air. But those glass balls, like your family, your work, uh, those are the ones that you have to really cherish and, and make sure that those don't fall out. I, I love that you were in this class and you're, you're talking to folks who – you know, you're reading similar stuff, but you're taking taking different lessons from it and you're applying it in different ways. So often, I feel like, again, this is so high, this is such hyperbole right now, but it feels as if right now it's harder for people with differing opinions to have some sort of civil discourse and maybe even possibly learn from somebody else who's thinking something a little different than them. Um, when you're in a class like this, obviously that's the backbone. That is the point. Whereas if like you're on social media, that's not necessarily the point. So you can kind of move on to the next thing. But here we are, you're doing this um, full time. So what's that like for you in terms of things that you learned and just how to, again, maybe you've already learned this before you entered the class, certainly, but learning from how to engage with people who, are approaching either a topic, a question, a problem, and coming to coming at it in a way that is different than you did. And even if you're fully invested and believe that you're right, you're willing and open to um, listening to what they have to say, even if you have a firmly held belief. I would say you definitely have to be able to listen and hear what the other person is saying. I mean, those are two completely different things, right? Listening and hearing what somebody is saying. And being able to interpret what they're saying with what their intent is. So, you know, you have sender, receiver, context. Um, those, are, those are all very important things of, of how people are receiving your message. But it's, it's not just the person that's giving the message. It's the person that's receiving it as well. And so those, those three things, very important. Um, but you also have to, if you disagree with somebody, you have to, come come from a place of curiosity and not judgment. So if you disagree with somebody, it's fine to say that you disagree with them. But then, you know, ask them why they believe something 
and you, and you don't have to argue, just, just listen and hear their side. Their experience is different than yours. Uh, you know, their value system, what they hold dear is it, those are all different things from maybe how you grew up or what you've experienced through your life. And all of those things are going to play a role in how you're interpreting what somebody is saying. And just coming from that place of curiosity is really important. Um, as I started to get into my thesis writing, um, kind of looking at what had been written about motivation in the past and what I knew I wanted, or at least what I thought I wanted to write about on motivation, um, there was a little bit of conflict there and um, lots of lots of room for disagreement. And I think as long as you make that space and not necessarily judge other people for it, then then that's what makes a class like the one that I just went through is so important. All right, let's talk about your thesis because this is this is fascinating stuff. I love hearing about motivation in certain areas and, and especially taking it from one area and trying to transposing it into another and what lessons we can learn. You just kind of hinted right there that you came into this project, this thesis with certain beliefs or certain things that you wanted to tackle. What were those exactly? I have always been curious about motivation. What makes people do the things that they do? And so this didn't actually start out as a thesis about combat motivation. However, because I was in this course, of course, I had to go back and, uh, you know, tie it to national strategy. Um, so, you know, the United States can have the best strategy in the world to defeat any adversary. But if you don't have the people to implement that strategy because they don't know why, they're doing what they're doing, or they don't agree with what they're doing, then you've already failed before you've even put that strategy into place. So it's all about the people and what they think is important, right? Um, it's it's different than morale. Um, there's been a lot of uh, theses or a lot of research done on morale and unit cohesion and you know teamwork, um, which can definitely apply to a lot of different. Um, running aspects, you know, if, when you're looking at track teams or cross country teams, or whatever, um, morale is the emotional and psychological response to something. Motivation is the actual physical response. So I was looking at more or less why pilots would get back into an aircraft and fly despite being shot at during World War II. And what we discovered through my research was that the motivation was actually built during training. And so what I wanted to do was apply that to just everyday life. So before you actually act on whatever it is that you want to do, have you been trained ahead of time to react a certain way and put into action what you learned in that training? And that correlates directly to running, right? So doing, doing what you're doing on the road at the start line, everything that you've practiced up to that point was teaching you to find the motivation to get through the race that you're running or the workout that you're about to do. Oh, how interesting. All right. So going back to those pilots training that preceded them being shot at was part of the training 
um, designed towards amplifying or encouraging motivation in some sense, or was it just, or were there other factors that led to that increased motivation um, after certain training um, protocols? Uh, there's a couple different factors that you have to take into account. So, um, and, and they can also apply to runners as well. So the fact that you're distinguishing, uh, an airman from a civilian before you put them into training and saying you are now going to be in the military. Um, I liken that to, um, telling a runner, okay, you are either part of a team or you are a runner and this is what your job is going to be. You're not just Joe Schmo you know, doing recreational jogging or, you know, something like that. So you've identified that person and told them specifically, um, this is what you want them to do. Um, so that's step one. Um, and then there's a couple other things, you know, um, the actual physical act of repetition. So doing these things over and over and over again to practice so that you don't have to think about it when you actually get to the start line. Um, these pilots trained for hours, days, months before they actually deployed uh, into the European theater uh, over the skies of Germany, um, they had practiced and practiced and practiced what they were going to be doing when they got there. And I see that as the parallel in what we do every day. We run every day. We work out once or twice a week. We do those muscle movements that we want to actually see done when we get to our competition. All right, let's go back to step one there. It seems like a part of that, and please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm used to being wrong quite a bit, so I'm, I'm totally fine with it. It seems like part of that is a feeling of identity, right? How that plays into it, instead as opposed to like, I run versus I am a runner. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely plays into the mental aspect. Um, so how do we get people to act on that? Um for example, in the military, you put somebody in a uniform. When you're a runner, you put on your running clothes or you put on your team colors when you're going to go do a competition. Or um, if you have a specific pair of shoes that you wear that are race specific, these are my race shoes. I am now identifying myself as a racer as opposed to just you know going out for a recreational jog. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And then what's the interplay like between... You know, so oftentimes people think of motivation as preceding action. And it seems like you know, what we're talking about here is kind of the reverse of that and also kind of has a chicken and egg type feel to it. What's been your um, your findings and what, you, what you've researched about the interplay of those, those two steps? Uh, I, th- I think it is chicken and egg. I think the morale plays a big role, even though that wasn't the kind of emphasis of my research. Um, I'm actually going to be doing some more research on that later. Because I was going to say, know. you haven't done a lot of research in your life, Amy. You really need to step it up. Uh, <laughs> oh, we are just getting started. <laughs> um, there's this really interesting kind of dichotomy between these two words, right? And um, what I would love to research more is when did we stop talking about kind of this morale versus motivation, like where and when did that verbiage change? So I want to say like 1820s, 1830s, it was very morale, morale, um, emotional response, psychological response. Um, And then probably in the mid 1900s, so 1950s, I would say, 
like right after World War II, going into the Korean War, they started coming up with this idea of combat motivation, which is the will to act and, you know, the physical action itself. So what was the impetus for that change? And, and how do we think about it? Because I think both play a very large role, even though I was very invested in the motivation side of that. Right. Now, where does the word inspiration fall? I feel like if morale and motivation were a range on, you know, those are two ends of the range, where would the word like inspiration or the feeling of being inspired fall within that range? That's a great question. (laughs) Maybe I'll add it to my list of things I want to research. Um, (laughs) I, uh, so specifically for combat motivation, that would fall in the realm of leadership. Um, We talk a lot about a couple of different theorists and and how they see the genius of military leadership in our generals. And um, I was very interested in intrinsic or internal motivation and what was getting people to uh, do the things they were doing because they wanted to, rather than being told that they had to. Um, so it was a little bit different um, Inspiration to me is a little bit more extrinsic, so externally uh, coming from the outside. Um, but you still have to internalize that. So I guess I would have to kind of do a little bit more research and see. What do you think? I think it definitely could probably more towards like the morale side of it kind of falling into that into that realm. Obviously, it's not going to be necessarily a subset of either one of these words or ideas um, because of the external factor. Um, you know, people don't inspire themselves. Right. I think that's that's probably not the right use of the word. I feel like we're like, you know, when you think of motivation, like you mentioned before, um, it does feel like it can easily be a like um, amalgamation of like a bunch of different ideas and words. Whereas like you almost wish there was like maybe there is maybe it just hasn't been um, maybe it's just not part of the popular lexicon of the idea of like, you know, people like in Alaska have like 32 different words for snow, right? Or they means the Inuit who have like 32 different words for snow. And if you lived in a snowy climate, you know, like, oh yeah, like there's this and then there's that. I feel like, um, you know, or someone who's never had snow before is like, oh, snow. Like it's all just, it comes out of the sky, it's white snow. Uh, I feel like motivation kind of has, takes on that quality of like, it can be very layered and have a lot of different things to it, but it is um, oftentimes this overarching term that um, can mean a lot of things and ultimately maybe not as targeted as some language can be. Um, now I'm not the expert here. Why am I talking so much? Um, good back to, back to you, Amy. Um, with all of that being said, and you're talking about intrinsic motivation to do something, especially in a situation where these pilots found themselves, where they were potentially facing death. Right. In a very real way, not academically speaking, but hey, this, this this just happened. And then they're getting back into that theater of potentially facing death again. What were some of the things that you could look back on and say, all right, this in training, this helped prepare them to identify to, to, to move forward in that sense in terms of like, all right things that, that could have happened in training or could not have happened in training? Like, was there, if you, could you look back on someone's training and maybe even predict which people would be more likely to get back into that theater versus not as likely simply by looking at the training that they had experienced? I will send you my thesis after that, because we do talk a little bit about it. Um, it's a very, it's a very specific question. <laughs> um, and I, 
how many people are interested in learning about the combined bomber offensive during World War II? I don't know. Um, I would say it's very specific to, so I was, I was looking at uh, the bomber community specifically um, and looking at the way that these um, air crew would come together in kind of these small groups and were very reliant on one another uh, when they did deploy. And so I would say that as somebody, so if you, if you were looking for a parallel for that, somebody that has a support system that um, is not necessarily driving, you know, the person that's getting into the cockpit and flying the airplane, but somebody that they can come back to and say, you know, this is what I experienced and we have the shared experience um, or somebody that you had to rely on, say your navigator or your bombardier in the air crew, um, they're in the aircraft with you. And so they are in that life or death situation the same time you are. Um, so the parallel obviously for running would be a teammate that's maybe running the same race that you're running at the same time. Um, so you have your support network, but then you also have people that are experiencing almost exactly the same thing that you are at the same time. Those would be, um, but as long as you have some, uh, someone to share that with and, you know, it could be a teammate, it could be a family member, um, it could be friends. I mean, I see that for myself every day and there's, there's only so many times you can get knocked down before, (laughs) before you want to give up. But then if you have those those people in your life that are saying, no, we need you to get back out there. Uh, we need you to go fly this aircraft because, well, it was a little bit different for World War II. You have, you know, this existential threat. <laughs> I don't necessarily have that in running, but um, sometimes <laughs> I believe I do, but I, I don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, those shared experiences, that's, that's really going to be the kicker for where that motivation is, is built. Can that shared experience feeling and the, the social aspect um, in that community, can it be, does it, have, does it have to be peers or can it be like, I guess in these in this case, like superior officers or in the running space, like can it be a coach who was maybe not like a superior officer, technically speaking, but someone who's helping advise another person? Like, does it have to be experience, like a literal shared experience or can it be someone who is just empathetic and can help um, just communicate with an individual uh, about the experience. Oh no, I definitely think it, it, it will boil down to empathy and you can get that from anyone that, you know, that is, that you can be vulnerable with, that you can share your love with. Um, If somebody cares about you and they hear your experience and can internalize it even just a little bit and try and understand where you're coming from, um, that's going to help build your motivational base. It's, it's not going to be the end all and be all. I mean, you have to have a love of something. I have to have a love of running to want to get back out there, but I also don't have a coach that's going to say, no, you have to do that. I have to want to do it for myself. 
Right. Now, when you were going through this process and doing all the research, did you ever look back at points in your life and specifically your athletic and running life where maybe you thought like, hey, if I had approached my training a different way, maybe I would have handled this hurdle or this race that didn't go my way or something along those lines that maybe I could have, you know, handled that situation better if I had prepared differently uh, along the way? I think that it's, you know, it's been 20 years that I've been doing this and it's definitely evolved over time. Um, for me, I think it really comes down to, um, asking myself why I'm doing it and kind of internalizing that purpose for myself. So I can share all I want with my coach, with my husband, with my daughter, and I do. But if I'm not honest with myself and talk about why I'm doing what I'm doing and, you know, find my motivation that way, then then there is no reason for me to even be out there. No, I believe it. All right. Let's talk about you as a coach, right? So you're doing all this work on motivation and having people perform at the highest levels and bouncing back from, from difficult experiences. How has your I guess, philosophy and just day-to-day operations as a coach changed or evolved or improved um, through this work or just, just generally speaking, you know, over time? So when I'm talking to my athletes, I, it's hard for them to get out of the mindset of doing what they're doing for someone else. Um, so there is a lot of external motivation going on, um, whether they're trying to prove something to someone else, uh, you know, and you kind of have to talk to them in a way that they have to come to the realization that they should be doing this for their own reasons, you know, internalize, internalizing that and not necessarily external, um, I really don't like when someone's like, oh, I want to go out and uh, my sole reason for doing this 5K is because I need to beat this person I've never beat before. I I love that drive, but at the same time that to me, there's not a whole lot of room for growth with that. So as soon as they get to that point where they're beating the person that they want to beat, now where do we go from there? There is, you know, we have to have this growth mindset and don't limit yourself with an externally motivated reason. You have to find something inside yourself uh, and, and getting your athletes to kind of believe in themselves and, and find their own reasons why, as opposed to uh, what their coach is telling them that they need to do. Like I, I'm, you're not running for me. <laughs> As much as you want to believe that you did that workout for me, that's not the reason you did it. You did it for yourself. And then I have to just get them to believe that. How about the external thing of like Boston qualifying times, right? So that's not a person that they're beating, but it's also a standard that is outside of themselves and isn't connected to their fitness in any way. Right. It's just a completely external thing that they have no control over and yet can be a barometer for a lot of people, not only in terms of what their fitness level means, but whether or not they're being successful. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard a lot of um, a lot of runners that that is their main goal. And I don't find that that's a problem as a goal, but it shouldn't be the motivation behind your running. 
uh, I was a BQ chaser and I have run Boston eight times now, I think. And I love going to that race, but it's not about qualifying for that race anymore. It's going and being surrounded by people that share a love for the sport that I love. Uh, I don't love the idea of people getting wrapped around the numbers of trying to qualify for the Boston marathon, because then when, once you qualify and you actually run it, then what's next. And there's, and there's no problem with setting running Boston as a goal. Like I said, it's just, that shouldn't be the sole reason for your running. I don't think now there's some people that disagree and that's fine. All right, dude, you bring up a great point, and thank you for doing so, because I wasn't going to go there. I hadn't thought of it, and you're absolutely right. The difference between goals, having a goal in your training, and having the motivation to train. So can you just, you know, in terms of, like, identifying our terms, I know we've talked about motivation already a little bit here, but, you know, what what the differences are there, because I feel like they are very easy to conflate. Yeah, I, th- I think the goals are milestones that you can set for yourself, um, they're markers for whether or not you've improved, but the motivation is the true driver behind why you're doing what you're doing. So I go and run because I want to stay healthy for my family, not to chase down a Boston qualifying time or, um, you know, I've set the goal of running a 250 marathon, um, probably won't happen this year. <laughs> And that's fine. Um, but it is, that is going to be my benchmark for improvement, but that's not why I go out and run. And so the motivation behind why I'm running isn't solely to meet that time goal. It's to stay healthy and present a image of what healthy should be and be a role model for other people. And especially with that being the case, I can see why before you circled back to what is my why? Because that obviously has a direct correlation to uh, the definition of motivation you just laid out. Yeah. Amy, this is fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for sharing all this information. Obviously, someone at the beginning of this conversation is like, how is this at all related to running? Is this a military <laughs> podcast? No, but we got there. And I thank you so much, not only for all the work that you've done, but for sharing it with us. Uh, it really is appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. It's always fun coming on and chatting with you. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a blast to talk to Amy. That is for sure. Um, that's about it, man. I, I usually do a little long outro. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The Olympic trials. I hope you're watching. This has been so exciting. This has just really been so much fun. I think Tuesday and Wednesday are the rest days. So I'm recording this on Sunday afternoon. You know, tonight and tomorrow night are going to be nuts. Monday night is going to be wild. It is going to be absolutely wild. And then we started back up again on Thursday. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song Righteous Path featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.